0: try to come up with five preaching principles from second Corinthians chapter four. So go ahead and talk about that in your groups now. Okay. So let's, let's come back together. Uh, second Corinthians chapter four. And uh, I'd love to hear just a couple preaching points from each group. Um, what did your group find? You know, give me a couple preaching principles from each group uh, that we can learn from Paul's ministry in second Corinthians four.
1: So uh, can we say, uh, in verse 4, it says we need to uh, depend on uh, the Spirit of God. Sometimes when we prepare a sermon, we might depend on the, the way we uh, prepared. But because the God of this world blinded the people's heart, only the Holy Spirit can... Uh, yeah revealed the truth, so we need to depend on the Spirit of God.
0: Yeah, and the God of this world is the devil, right? It's an it's a a, um, a circumlocution or a uh, a euphemism. He's not he's not saying the word devil. He's he's hinting at that that's what he's talking about. But yeah, that's exactly right. Satan blinding the hearts of unbelievers shows our need. The Holy Spirit to work.
2: Good. What else? We talked about verse one Mm -hmm.
3: that we are only pastors because of God's mercy.
2: We don't deserve this position.
0: excellent by the mercy of god excellent
2: good what else
0: what was that about affliction and suffering I heard a little bit of what you said, but you're you're a little quiet on the microphone.
1: Preach at all time, even in the affliction and suffering, expecting the weight of glory that will be revealed. Verse
0: expecting God's word to be revealed, is that what you said?
4: Yeah, the ways of glory. Expecting the weight of glory to be.
0: Oh, the weight of glory.
2: Good. What else?
0: Don't lose heart in ministry because God made us uh, the ministry of the least of the covenant by his mercy. First one. Good.
4: Good. Maybe one or two more. Does anyone say anything about verses 5 and 6? We preach the truth. Jesus. Jesus.
1: We proclaim Christ as Lord, not ourselves.
0: Yes. like this is this is a point we have to we have to get down and we looked at it last week also, right? but preaching is not about us. Preaching is not about us. If you have that driving principle in your life that that is what will keep you faithful. Uh, preaching is not about us. preaching is about Jesus. Good, 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 good. Anyone have anything else that you'd like to share? Otherwise, we'll move on.
4: Depending on the spirit's power.
0: Yes. Like this is a, what we're doing is a supernatural activity. There's nothing. There's nothing natural about it. Sure, it's our words coming out. It's people's minds and hearts responding, but in all of that. Satan is working to blind people's eyes. The spirit must open their eyes. It's, it's, this is a supernatural ministry, a supernatural activity that we're doing. Good. Any other ideas? Otherwise, we'll move on. I think one more.
4: Just to add mm-hmm. on what you said.
0: We'll do Brian's and then AB's, and then we'll be good. What was that, Brian? Yeah, I was looking at verse 8 to 10.
2: hmm
5: I think... One principle I get is in a lifetime of faithful ministry, you should expect um, should expect hardship, uh, but that hardship will not like um, totally crush us or God will sustain us in that hardship.
2: Good.
0: good and avi what was yours
4: um mine was that just to echo what you said it's a supernatural thing it's on un- un- unless god opens up their eyes uh, the fight is not just our utterance or it's not we're not trying to convince them and it's not something that we can convince people because they're they are blinded and and it's within the word, the preaching of the word that God uses to um, break the veil so that they can understand the glory of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. That's in that, the, the, the transformation that we see happens.
0: Good. <clears throat> Good. That's exactly right. Excellent. Good. Thank you, guys. Okay. So quickly, let's, let's review what we were talking about with main points. So main points, you want them to be natural. You want them to be text oriented. You want them to, um, help you prove the proposition, preach the proposition, right. You want them to be parallel in length, things like that. One thing I didn't mention in your presentation of main points, um, You want to, as best you can, make them parallel in time, okay? So if main point one is 20 minutes of your sermon, main point two should probably be 20 minutes also. If they're not, let people know, right? You can have a sermon that main point three is short, but it's its own unique idea, and you can do that. But what you don't want is for main point one to be 20 minutes, main point two to be 20 minutes, and main point three be five minutes, and people are looking at their watches wondering, oh my goodness, how, <clears throat> how long is this sermon going to be? There's, there's four main points where we're at, we're 30 minutes in and we've only done main point one, right? You can, you can tell people up front, you know, we're going to make four observations from this text. And just so everyone knows, we're going to spend most of our time on the first one. That really helps people (laughs) to know like, okay, we're not going to, once you've done 30 minutes on main point one and there's four main points, okay, we're not going to be here for two hours with this sermon. This is going to be a normal length sermon. Just like things like that just help set people's expectations. So I I wanted to mention that in our presentation, presenting main points yesterday, but I didn't. Um, So any questions on main points before we have our main point workshop?
2: so josh yeah
0: i was wondering
5: when can you say like we have too many main points is there like a recommended number
0: yeah good question so so most most western um oratory skills um recommend somewhere between three and four now of course that's 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 Western, that's not African, that's not Asian um, that's based upon plato aristotle just the the philosophers that have given the um, kind of the um, the grounds for our rhetoric. so much of that comes from them uh, and we have a culture and expectations but it is a, a pretty proven fact that most people can only remember you know, two to three to four things at once. Um, once you get to five, six, seven, eight, nine, um, you're, you're starting to get into, okay, I can't even re- remember what we're talking about right now. Uh, in fact, I don't, when you, when you look at... Um...
3: Josh, I was wondering, mm-hmm. when we did the exegetical outline yesterday, mm-hmm. a lot of us did like three headings or three boxes, it, it kind of seems like the starting point is there for our main points. Would that be a valid? Yeah,
0: yeah you're, you're exactly right. Especially if you're, if you're not doing a thematic main point structure, but you're doing um, more of a traditional text flow main point structure. Yeah, that's exactly right. What, whatever the divisions are of your exegetical outline should be the divisions of your main points. Unless you're approaching it from a thematic perspective or a narratival perspective or one of those other alternatives that we talk about, or like a a theological concept perspective, all of those would give you different ways of approaching it for sure. But yeah, that's exactly right. The divisions of the text should be the divisions of the sermon. Okay, so Faisal, your prop is because Christ cares for us who are suffering. We can trust him. I might change that to because Christ cares for us in our suffering or something like that, or because Christ cares for his suffering children. Just it's a little bit um, at least to, to a native English speaker that feels a little bit awkward in, in the wording because Christ loves for us who are suffering because Christ cares for his suffering children, something like that. But I think that's, I mean, that's a great idea. We can trust him. Um, interrogative what God expects from us to exalt us in the proper time.
2: Let's see, okay, that's inductive, deductive. Humble yourself.
0: We'll pull up this text here. So my, my first question is, your, your proposition has to do with God's Christ care for us, right? So Christ cares for us, that, but that doesn't, that doesn't lead me to ask the question, what does God expect from us to exalt us at the proper time, right? That, um, that, doesn't, that doesn't naturally lead me to that question. Christ cares for you. Okay, so what, what do I need to do for God to exalt me then? It, that doesn't. it's The question doesn't naturally flow. I don't think. Um, let me look at the text. First Peter
2: five, right? Yes.
0: Yeah, so if you're, if you're going for the care of Christ, which I think you are, which I think, I think is good from this text. So the care of Christ causes us to cast our anxieties on him and the care of Christ will solve all of our suffering for eternity, right? I, I might ask the question, so because Christ cares for those who are suffering, we can trust him. I think, I think you could ask either one, what does trusting Christ look like? What does trusting Christ look like? Trusting Christ looks like humbling ourselves and casting all our cares on, casting our anxieties on Him. Trusting Christ looks like taking my anxieties and throwing them onto Christ. That's what trusting Him looks like. Um, Yeah,
1: I have done two outline, but my I have do in inductive and deductive outline because somehow it's uh, the text. it's somehow um, uh, confusing for me because in first he said, uh, he give a commandment, three commandments, humble yourself, cast all uh, your anxiety on him and mm-hmm. be sober in mind, be sober minded.
0: Yes, it, it is confusing for sure. Yeah. Now the exegetical outline we worked through, I think provides some clarity on how those relate to one another now what you what you could do you could if you want to preach a whole sermon on verse seven if you want to you could preach a sermon on verse seven and then reference verse 10 later on if you're wanting to do that um but i I don't think i don't think hearing christ trust christ cares for me so i should trust him makes me ask the question what does God expect for me to exalt me? Right. This is the the question should naturally flow from the interrogative. I think I, I further the proposition. Your proposition is great. I think you just need to figure out what your question is.
1: What, what about? This? I think
0: the natural. What's that? The second dot The second one. Um, why should we trust Christ in our suffering? Okay. So because Christ cares for us, for those, for for his suffering children, we can trust him. Okay. Interrogative. So if we start with, why should we trust Christ in suffering? Good. Because in the proper time, He will exalt you because he cares for you and because Christ will end our suffering. That's much closer. That's much closer. I think now the problem is this is, it looks like main point two is your proposition, right? your proposition is he cares for us. So then if your second main point is he cares for us, then you've already said your proposition. So if you find a different way to word that, like something like, why should we trust Christ in suffering? Number one, because he, because he can take our burdens. I don't, hmm. the phrase he cares for us, of course, comes early in your text. But, so I get why you're bringing it up that early, but you, do you see how main point two is a restatement of your proposition? Does that make sense what i what I said there? No. But- yes, yeah, so you answer your you answer the question in main point two instead of waiting till the end. Mm. i think i think i think I think this is the question you should be asking so because Christ cares for his suffering children, we can trust him. And then if you ask, how does Christ show his care? Or what does trusting Christ look like? I think, I think what does trusting Christ look like is the right question. Number one, it looks like humbling ourselves, right? It looks like trusting Christ looks like humbling ourselves. And that, that, and what does it mean to humble ourselves? It means that we stop trying to fix the problem ourselves and we cast our anxieties on Christ. Do you see how that more naturally flows from your proposition? Your proposition is fantastic. I think where you went off is your interrogative. And if you get the interrogative right, then everything flows, flows very naturally from it.
1: So can I change our my uh,
0: interrogative to what is trusting Christ look like? Yes, I think so. What does trusting Christ look like? So what my, does it mean to trust Christ? So my main point will look like for Humbling
1: ourselves, um, casting all our, our uh, anxiety on Him, and yeah.
0: in, my, in, my, in our mind? So, well, I would say this. So, this is one idea, I think. Um, so, read some commentaries on how these ideas relate, but I think the way we humble ourselves right? Humbling ourselves looks like casting our anxieties on Christ. So this is a, this is a uh, adverbial participle. The main verb is humble yourselves. So the main idea is humble yourselves. What does humbling you look like? It looks like casting your anxieties on Christ and not taking them on yourself. Um, Be sober-minded. This is your second one. What does trusting Christ look like in suffering? It looks like It looks like something in spiritual warfare. You have to figure out a way to do it. But verses 8 and 9, trusting Christ in suffering looks like... um,
2: I'm not exactly sure how to
0: word verses 8 and 9. It looks like resisting temptations towards discouragement it looks like resisting temptations towards feeling alone right so the the, the problem he's addressing is it is the the problem he's addressing here is answered with knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world right so that that's where you go with your second point and then your third point is what does look what does trust christ look like in suffering it looks like Knowing that he will end all suffering forever. I think that's how you do it, and you can you can look back at it. But um, that's I would do something like that. Let's see. Okay. Anyone else want to? Send me one? James sent me his, but I, it, he and I already talked about that. He's doing a good job with his, for sure. Uh, John is hard, James. Just know, John is hard. You're, John, John is not Paul.
3: Yeah, so your uh, advice is helpful, though. I think it's really just good to go through this exercise because you see what the text is saying, what well, it's not. Right.
0: Yeah, it's true. Now, don't don't let me like don't let me write your sermon for you. And if you if if you're thinking I spent more time on this than Josh, and I think I know something better, go for it. Go for it. Prove me wrong. This is just a this is just a sermon in class, right? I'm not talking to you specifically, James. I'm talking to Faisal as well because we were just correcting that also.
3: I ended up changing my proposition. Okay. Was saying I think his first reason is sufficient. We should love because God is love. Yes. God never to son. Old Testament people were still supposed to love. Um so i think i think i went a little wrong there and now okay
0: sounds good and you'll you'll tinker with this more i mean i i rarely write a sermon and my proposition doesn't change throughout the sermon writing process yeah good anyone else want to show me one otherwise we'll move on
1: let me send you one okay great Josh, can i ask you one question
0: yeah
1: if i change like what does Christing, uh, trusting christ look like and my mm-hmm. point humbling yourself being sober-minded and knowing what christ will do in the next heaven and earth if we do that do you think our, our my proposition will work
0: yes i do because because the proposition works because your interrogative naturally flows from it i don't think i would make the second main point be sober-minded um, I, I, that's, it's hard for me to know what, um, I don't know what sober minded means when I think of sober, I think not being drunk. Right. So is he telling me to not be drunk? I mean, I know what being sober minded is. Um, it, it has to do with being single focused, single minded, not being distracted. Right. But your, your average listener does not sober. No one says be sober minded. No one talks like that in English. So I would just re rephrase that second one. Um, yeah, I think. And maybe rephrase your first one also. Because if your first one is just humble yourself, well, uh, the text is more clear than that. It's humble yourself. And what that looks like is throwing your anxieties on Christ.
1: Thank you, John.
0: Yeah. Without the gospel, we cannot live godly in the present age. Without the gospel, we cannot live godly in the present age. How so? The gospel points us to godly living the gospel empowers us for godly living, points us to godly living, empowers us for godly living. the pastor's role in preaching us the gospel.
4: It's appearing, looking back towards God's death. also empowers us for godly living. It also points us to godly living. It's just,
0: is it Titus 3? Or no, Titus 2? Titus 2. 11. Yeah. The grace of God has appeared. The gospel points us to God. The gospel of power. Looking back.
2: Christ's death.
0: We for your blessing. sharing a great time. Looking back at Christ's death. He us up for us. I, I might I might reword the proposition to something like the gospel empowers godly living or the only proper motivation for godly living is the gospel. Without the gospel, we cannot live godly in the present age. In the present age is a little bit. I mean, I, get, I know you get that from the text, but yeah. it's a little bit wordy. Like no, and no one talks like that. <laughs> um you want it to be something people like it feels we don't have to feel conversational so without the gospel we cannot live godly lives i think the gospel only the gospel can empower godly living something like that but i mean you've got you've got the main idea of the text um only the gospel can empower godly living how so how yeah how so is fine where do we see that where do we see it in the text right you make a claim where do we see it that's good that's more informal but i think it's it's good the gospel points us to godly living. Yes. It does gospel empowers us for godly living? Waiting. Okay. The pastor's role. Declare these things. Your your third main point. I don't see it. It doesn't clearly connect mm-hmm. with your proposition unless, unless you want your proposition, unless you want your sermon to be to pastors, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not to like a church, then you could say something like for your proposition, because, because the gospel is the yeah. only true source of God, God, godly living, we must, we must preach the gospel or something like that. Right. And then verse 15, 15 becomes your main application point to, to pastors otherwise i might get rid of verse 15 in your sermon or maybe what's your declare these things yeah would be?
5: i was also feeling like uh removing verse 15 from my sermon mm-hmm. and just being on um just the church yeah the leaders of the church I think.
0: Yes, it yeah, it certainly is. Now, now you could you could in your sermon make an application point
2: uh-huh. from
0: verse 15 if you want to. So um you could say what you know our, our responsibility is to. Ah uh, no, I would I would I I would probably unless you can find a way to unless you reword your proposition, I would remove verse 15.
5: Okay. I think that's okay.
0: Yeah okay and then if that's the the gospel points us to godly living and the gospel empowers us for godly living it's appeared training us okay to redeem us from all lawlessness so. i the other, the other thing is, I and and you study this more than me, and you know what you're thinking more than me. But it, it sounds, I mean, of course, pointing and empowering are different. Yeah, right. pointing or and empowering are different. You would just need to make that really, really clear. Because once I get to your third point, uh-huh. when you get to looking, looking sounds like pointing. Looking, like, looking doesn't sound like empowering. Uh-huh. Or how does the gospel? You can maybe ask the question: How does the gospel empower us? Or mm-hmm as we look to Christ appearing, as we look to his death yeah. or, yeah, you just had to find a way to make it clear okay. that those were different points. Otherwise you could just do a thematic, mm-hmm. you do a thematic outline also. I, I'm not trying to like destroy your entire outline here. I think, I think you've got the bones of it, mm-hmm. but yeah, I would reword that proposition. So I think, yeah, oh yeah, go ahead.
5: I think my idea was uh, from verse 12. So uh-huh. okay verse 11 and 12 this grace appeared you know teaching us that so it, basically it teaches us how we ought to live mm-hmm. uh, so that's the idea But you know it's pointing us this is the path yeah and then now the empowering part comes from verse 13 and 14 whereby so how do we get the power to live in this way So one aspect of the gospel is looking forward to the the return of Christ, and then the other aspect of the gospel is looking back at his death.
0: Yeah.
5: It empowers us to live godly.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. And the verbs here to redeem and to purify versus training. The gospel teaches us to do something, and the gospel actually does something. Yeah. I think I think you're right. The gospel The gospel points us towards holy living and the gospel empowers holy living, which is what you just said. I think that's, I think that's good. I think that's good. Just make it very clear that these are different. Like, and I think, I think you can, I think you can really hit that well when, if you can say like the gospel, I mean, the gospel teaches us that we should live lives pleasing to God. And that, that in itself, it leaves me a little bit hopeless, right? Because I already know that. Yeah. but then when you come in with the grace of actually it but it does more than that like if that was if that was the only thing i was saying that'd yeah. be bad news but the good news is the gospel actually enables this yeah um and how do we tap into that i, I think i think that's good okay yeah good job brian yeah, thanks josh uh, yeah let's look at emmanuel's Yep, so this is your exegetical outline.
1: I am so confused. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's your? You, have a pro, you had a proposition you told me yesterday. What's what your proposition?
2: Uh,
1: God is compassionate and eager to forgive Sina.
2: Sinners?
0: no it, it was more than that it was something like god's compassionate character prompts us to accept sinners right
1: because god is compassionate compassionate let me read it for you wait i am sorry it's okay because god is compassionate and eager to forgive sinners. We must imitate his heart towards sinners. You know.
0: I mean, that's a great prop, Emmanuel. That's really good, um, because God compassion, ego, to forgive sinners. We must imitate his heart towards sinners. Um,
1: I can choose uh, uh, the way how my outline.
0: Yeah, I get what you're doing with your, I mean, this is asking a textual question. This is not asking a homiletical question. So the, the interrogative needs to ask a question that the proposition answers. So if the proposition is because God is compassion eager to be with sinners, we must, we must imitate his heart towards sinners. Um, so then the, I mean, there's a few different questions you could ask from that. That would be good. One would be how. Um, how is God, how, how do we see God's compassion? Um, Uh, how do we see God's compassion towards sinners in this text? That could even be a main point one, if you wanted to, too. Um, how do we see God's compassion towards sinners? Main point two, how do we imitate his heart? yeah i i mean uh, i'm not trying to write your sermon for you again but um i think if you ask this how do we see god's compassion towards sinners one the younger brother right so how do we see it in the younger brother so point two how do we see it in the older brother because you have a great point here, the father has compassionate heart towards the younger brother and the older brother, and I think that that is, he has compassion both towards the one who's run away, and he has compassion towards the one who's still there but his heart is far from him.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then, how do we how do we imitate his heart? You do like subpoint one, the, like the negative example of the older brother. So point to the positive example, the father, right? So then you could draw, you know, draw principles from the older brother. What does the older brother do? The older brother judges, the older brother is self-righteous. Uh, you, you could, you could come up with, you know, like he, he thinks that he's, he's, he, he thinks that he doesn't need the father's grace. He thinks, or um, he he judges he judges the father because the father the father just spins all of his grace on the son, something like that. I I'm not, I'm not there's more than one way to do it. This is just off the top of my head, but but where you have I mean your prop is out out of this world, and your two observations like this is the heart of your sermon. Yeah, is the father has a compassionate heart and unconditional love both towards the younger brother and towards the older brother. And that's what you wanna point out. And your prop makes me ask the question, how do I do it? How do I imitate his heart? It makes me ask the question, where do I see his heart? What is his heart? Help me understand his heart. Okay, now that I understand his heart, how do I do it? Does that make sense? Yeah. Now you can do it a different way and you can think through this more. That's just my initial thought based on your prop.
4: Thank you.
0: Good, Think. keep thinking through it though, right? I'm not trying to write it for you. Um, so here, I can even send, send this to you. I think two or, two or three of you have sent me inductive deductive outlines. Those are hard guys, those are hard to do. And you can do it if you want, but those are hard to do. Okay, what was the next question?
4: Is it must have a uh, interrogative question?
0: I think it's helpful to have an interrogative because once I hear the, the interrogative serves to mm-hmm. guide the sermon towards the proposition. Now it depends on what kind of outline you want to have. So I think your outline was something like the King needed the King presented the King worshiped or something like that. And, and you could even do it like this. You know, I forget what, what's your proposition again? Your I'll
1: send you the, the homiletic. Okay.
0: I, you can ask a question, like, what's, like, I've, you could do this after your second main point. Okay, because Christ is the victorious king, we must worship him. I would I would say we must worship him and not so must worship him. Um, let's see. Christ is the victorious king. So, so, we're, oh, so worship him because Christ is the victorious king. We must we must worship him. Um, why do we worship the king? The king needed. The king presented.
2: The king worshipped. Um. I
0: this is how I would do. I I would do it like this. You you might even you might even be able to break your first main two points up into two subpoints. So then your first. You you could say, uh, no. I think why do we worship the king? So your your main points don't answer. They, they might, I'm a little confused how your prop and your interrogative work together, right? Um
1: I was because you
0: even have, uh-huh, go ahead.
1: Hesitating not uh, to use uh, interrogative. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I might, because Christ is the victorious king. He deserves our highest praise, something like that. I mean, that's what you're saying, right? Um, if you did it, if you did it inductively, okay? So if you did it inductively, you could do it like this. Um, Interrogative is... Why must we worship Christ? Or what is, what's the proper motivation for worshiping Christ? Or I, I almost feel like, let me think, because I'm trying to craft this. Main point one, king needed. Main point two, the king presented. Main point three, the king Worship. You could even do interrogative here and say, like,
2: why we must, what,
0: or like, what, what should be our response? Something like that, right? So, like, almost like the first two points set up. um, You could even do a prop, prop one um jesus christ is king
1: so interrogative question is uh it's like a transitional statement
0: yes it's a transitional statement it's 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 designed to transition from your prop to your sermon but in in this if you did it like this i'm just saying this is one way you could do it because so first you're establishing jesus as king then you're establishing what's the only proper response to jesus as king the only proper response to seeing Jesus as King is worship. Or because Christ is King, He deserves our highest praise. Something like that, right? I I, I think there's ways you can play with it. Um, it's it your your interrogative is the is the one part that's a little a little confusing um but i do think there's a clear transition in your sermon and in the text from the reality that jesus is king Mm -hmm. and our response you could yeah you even do that the the reality and our response but (coughs) what should be our response how should we respond you could even do who is christ in this text
1: yeah, I didn't understand uh, interrogative question at first, but now I get it. So.
0: Okay, sure, and you can keep working on it. But yeah, um, I mean, you're you've got it right. You're you're really close to ha- to nailing it. I wouldn't be discouraged at all. Uh, yep, siga. So
2: okay, what's your Okay, your text is First Peter four. <coughs> yeah, this is
0: because God is faithful. Let us rejoice amid suffering. Um, why should we rejoice in suffering? One. Sharing Christ's suffering, falling the steps to being purified and suffering, judgment and suffering. Three, God is faithful. This is great. Um, my my only my only hesitation is main point three restates your proposition. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um I I think you could say I uh, because God is faithful as your best and suffering, being purified, faithful. So I I you and I get that. What verse is this coming from? Yeah. And trust a faithful creator while doing good.
2: Yeah, I'm not
0: sure. So, if your point, if the point of your sermon is going to be the faithfulness of God, then you'll have to rethink your first two main points. If the main point of your sermon is rejoicing in suffering, you know, we, we must Christians must rejoice in suffering. Why? That doesn't make any sense. No one, no one does that. Why would I do that? Well, one, because Christ suffered and we're following his footsteps. Two, because we're being purified in suffering. And three, because God is faithful in suffering. And because of all of that, we must rejoice in suffering. Yeah. So something like something like that. Or yeah, I it's good. It I your impulse is good to have a a because in your prop. You don't have to. If you do have a because I would I'm you can either do that, like rejoice in the suffering, or you could rework your because. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're almost there. You really are. Just figure out how to not make main point three the same as your proposition. That. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you're almost there, my friend. Well done. So we're transitioning now to the body of this sermon talk uh, how to outline sermon when so now we're looking how to to not do what our friend ignatius just did and and uh either have an idea that could be drawn to the text but then it's not right so you can you can have main points that are from the text and you can have propositions that are from the text and then your explanation is nowhere close to the text uh or have um applications that have nothing to do with what you're talking about or illustrations that have nothing to do with what you're talking about. I mean, I've heard, I've heard plenty of sermons in my time that have illustrations that have I've heard. I've heard that many times, but what, what Ignatius said, I gotta be honest, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Um, so what, what we're doing is we're, we're moving into now the body of the sermon and filling out the body of the sermon and uh, the the body of the sermon is going to have three, three parts to it. It's going to have three parts. Once you, once you have your outline, once you have your interrogative, your, your proposition, you're going to be doing three things in your sermon. Okay. You're going to be explaining or explanation, illustration and application. Explanation, illustration and application. Okay. And, uh, what I this is what I do when I write my sermons. Actually, let me just pull up. Let me find a sermon I've preached recently. Just um, an example of this. So this is when I do my sermons. I put these little prompts here, so that you can see. Um, this is my manuscript. And so I'll have explanation listed here. I'm explaining, uh, explanation, explanation slash application, application, illustration, application, uh, trans transition, explanation. So I'm labeling every section of my sermon according to one of these three things, illustration, explanation, application. And if, if I'm not doing one of these three things, with what I'm saying in my sermon, then that, that point that part has nothing to do with my sermon. If I'm not if I'm not explaining, you know, where did you get that? Where is that in the text? How can I understand what's in the text? Okay, that's explanation. If I'm if I'm not doing that, then I should be illustrating. So looking at it. at it from another angle um looking at it from a different side looking at it from another angle or application um how do i live it out what do i believe so i should do if i'm not doing one of these three things um then i'm I'm wasting my time. (laughs) I need to be doing one of these three things uh, at all points in my sermon, either explaining an idea, illustrating the idea, applying the idea, or even you can even illustrate an application. So you can give an application point and then show an example of what the application looks like. Um, And that gets into the flow of these three. Okay. So there's, there's there's usually two options for how these can flow together. So option one, Uh, is you, you explain something, you explain a point, then you illustrate the point, and then you apply the point. So you explain what you're taught, what the text says, you give an illustration to help people understand what the text is saying, and then you apply it. Now, you don't always need an illustration. In fact, when we talk about illustrations, we're going to say, we only illustrate things that need illustrating, (laughs) right? We don't illustrate just for the sake of illustrating. Um, But explanation gives way for illustration gives way for application it we don't just tell stories in other words we tell stories that help us understand what we're explaining or we tell stories that help us understand how to how to apply it so that's that's option two explanation followed by application and then we illustrate the application right so if we're explaining um, we must have faith in the midst of suffering or we must trust in the midst of suffering or for yapsaga Christians must rejoice in suffering. Um, we see that in the text, we apply it, you know, so, so what this means is when we have, um, you know, when, when life is hard that we can, we should always rejoice because our hope and joy is found in Christ and not in our situation. So we explain it, we apply it, we might even get more specific than that. And then we illustrate it. So let me, let me tell you a story of someone in our church who's doing that exact same thing right now. Or let me give you an example for someone from history, or let me give you an example of, uh, someone who can rejoice because their joy isn't tied. Their joy isn't tied to this thing, right? Their joy is outside of this thing. Their joy is um, I don't know. one example that just came to my mind. This is, this is silly. I, I probably wouldn't use this in a sermon, but um, you guys have seen the, the, how the Grinch stole Christmas. Have you guys seen that movie or no or is that like crazy fringe stuff okay yeah so you have um the who the grinch tries to the grinch steals all the christmas trees and the presents right because he wants to steal christmas but then all the village down below is able to still sing on christmas morning because the joy around christmas was not centered around um the presents in the tree christmas meant a lot more than that and so because because their joy wasn't tied to the presence in the tree. Christmas meant something more. So they're able to still rejoice. So you can say, and I wouldn't use that in your sermon. Um, That's not a good illustration. I think it's, yeah, it's not a good illustration, but that's, I'll I'll use that in the classroom. You explain the idea, you apply the idea, then you illustrate the idea. And then you can even then after you illustrate it, you you can bring it home with another application point. So illustrations can both illustrate what you explain, and they can illustrate how you what you apply. And and what what these do the these three ideas explanation illustration application there we they can be an alternative to subpoints. They can be an alternative to subpoints. So you can have instead of main point one and then subpoint one, subpoint two. Sub so point three. You can instead do because subpoints are not subpoints are not illustrations, subpoints are not applications. You can do main point one, you know, Christ is king. Christ has ultimate authority. Right. And then I do explanation. And I show it from the text. Then I apply or I illustrate it. And then i apply it right so this this can also function as kind of a structure in your sermon um, or a structure beneath your main points so I okay let's look at the text let me let me explain or illustrate it to you now let me apply it or let me explain from the text let me illustrate it or let me apply it and then let me let me illustrate what i just applied to kind of drive the point home with a story um so it's yeah
1: can we put our application at the end of uh, our our main points rather than-
0: yes rather than what sorry
1: rather than putting it in uh, putting it in in our uh, main points
0: yeah like at the end of your sermon you mean yeah. absolutely you can and so a lot of this depends on what kind of sermon outline you're doing so if if you're doing one of the alternative sermon outlines that i suggested yesterday you know that would work well with like uh like a theological concept outline a story a story interpretation application i think this is great this would be fine for your sermon also yes of course you give the story you give the you give the interpretation then you give the application what do we learn from that we learn three things the the point the point of these three is not as much to give us a structure for the sermon as it is to say, we should be doing either explanation, illustration, or application at all times, and if we're not doing one of those three things we're 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 talking about nothing <laughs> we're we're wasting everyone's time um it, it should be one of those three yeah a b uh,
4: is there any like format or structure that we should have should we have it like explanation illustration application uh and also the other thing is that should the application, is that, is it must for it to come at the end? Because I feel like sometimes they build up, build up, and all I said is for this reason, so let's apply. Or can we do, can we bring applications everywhere if there's many points or whatever? What do you-
0: yeah, good question. And we'll talk more about this this afternoon. This is just kind of orienting us to the discussion. But the, the point of all of these, the point, the the purpose of explanation, illustration, application, this is what it is. The point is to serve the pastoral needs of the church as defined in the proposition. It's to serve the pastoral needs of the church as defined in the proposition. So again, we could explain endless details about the text. We could illustrate, we could get up there and tell tons of stories that illustrate those endless details, and we could apply every single word of the text. But what we're doing is we're trying to serve the pastoral need of the church, as defined in the proposition. So I don't explain things. I don't. I don't explain things that are unrelated to the proposition, and I don't apply it in a way that's unrelated to the proposition. The proposition tells me, but the proposition helps narrow your focus in what you explain and what you apply. Now the order, the order, the. I do think explanation explanation always gives birth to illustration or application. You can't apply something you haven't explained, and you can't you can't illustrate something you haven't explained. Okay. So explanation serves as the foundation always. Now, if you want to, you can do you know an illustration, a story that leads into an explanation, or do maybe have like a quick explanation, do an illustration, and then back to explanation, and then apply it something like that if you want to you can do explanation 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 throughout your sermon and go explanation illustration explanation illustration that'd be a sermon that's focused more on understanding the ideas and you get to the end and you say so how do we make this practical you can do that it depends on how you want to structure your sermon
3: do you sometimes josh do an illustration first like to open the sermon
0: yeah yeah we'll talk more about introductions tomorrow and their purpose um i I, you can you you absolutely can um but you you just you don't want to feel artificial you don't want to feel artificial because once it starts feeling artificial you've you've actually done the opposite and you've actually lost people instead of gaining their trust um yeah but it's a good question yeah so you the the one exception to this might be the um the introduction but it depends on how it depends on your personality it depends on what you're trying to do in the sermon but we'll talk more about introductions tomorrow we're talking about mostly the we're talking about the body of the sermon right now so i'm talking about the conclusion the transitions we're not talking about the introductions we're just talking about the body good any other questions on that before we so we're going to start then with explanation Josh, unless is it yeah uh,
1: so uh, if we're following you to do the <laughs> you know, the, the sermon,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so, do you think we have enough time to write the content?
0: So if you're going to manuscript your sermon by the end uh, for when you preach this, um, then you're going to need to do more work than what we do in class. But I think that what we do in class is going to make the manuscript writing very, very simple. You're going to have an incredibly detailed outline by the end of the class. But if you want to go with a the manuscript, then you're going to have to do some more work. But I think I think you're going to get to the end of this and you're going to say, oh, I mean, my manuscript basically writes itself at this point.
1: I think it's, for us, manuscript is mandatory because uh, English is our second language. If it's in Amharic, then we won't do a uh, manuscript.
0: Yeah. And uh, I think where manuscripts help, even if you don't preach from a manuscript, manuscripts can help when you write the sermon, because all that writing is, is thinking on a page, right? You're thinking on a page. And so it helps you to really become clear with where you're going, how you want to say it and be precise. I always manuscript my sermons. Now, that doesn't mean I don't stray from my manuscript at times, or I don't summarize the ideas that are in my manuscript but I always go up with a full manuscript whenever I preach. And the purpose of that is um, I've, I've worked hard to word things in a very specific way. Uh, I've, I've crafted each sentence individually and I I want to stay as close to that as possible because, because the task we're doing requires precision. But yeah, you, if you want to, if you want to manuscript it, um, you will have to do a little bit more work, but I think, we're going to, the tools we're going to be doing today, you'll, you'll be in, in pretty good shape to quickly manuscript the rest of it. Okay, so unless there are any more questions, we'll get into explanation.
3: I was going to ask, Josh, do you have uh-huh. any general word count issue for?
0: So this is, yeah, this is different for every person. Every person speaks at a different pace. I tend to speak faster than most people. Okay. You're, the average person, we're talking about manuscripts, the average person speaks about 110 words per minute. So if you speak at 110 words per minute, 110 times 45, you should be looking at about 5,000 words for your manuscript. Now, the most recent sermon I preached, I preached this one. This was 5,431 words, and I preached this in 40 minutes. That was a slower one. So if I do 5,431, and I put my text in there and everything. I put everything except for my prayer um, divided by 40. So I spoke at 135 words a minute. So I, I speak a lot faster than most people, but I think if you try to do around 5,000 words for a manuscript, you should be good. Yeah. And that doesn't even include times I strayed from my manuscript and like, like there were what I like because I'm a good, because I'm a good continuationist. Um, I'm, as I'm preparing to go up, I'm praying and I'm, I'm actually making notes in my manuscript before I go up. Of uh, impressions the Lord is giving me on maybe something to emphasize, something to say, things like that. As I'm as I'm getting ready to go, because I'm expecting the sermon, to, the Spirit to be speaking to me uh, in that. That that's part of the preparatory moment, is as I'm seeing how the sermon, the Spirit is leading the songs. If there's a prophetic word, um, conversations beforehand, things like that. Okay, explanation. So do we need to explain the text? Should we explain the text? Yes. In short, I have some text here to defend that, but Jesus Jesus explained the text, right? Luke 4, Luke 24, Jesus explained the text. Ezra explained the text. Now, the interesting thing about the Ezra explaining the law is that uh, he explained it and applied it for that audience even though it wasn't originally written for that audience right which which I think gives us credence to do the same even though even though we're not the original audience the text is still for us as well so the purpose the purpose of explanation the purpose as we said up here is to serve the pastoral needs of the church as identified in the proposition what that means is the pro- the it is limited and it is focused Explanation is limited and focused. It is not about any and every detail of the text. It is only about the details of this text that help me prove the proposition. I don't explain every word in the text, even. I don't explain every phrase in the text, even. I explain the parts of the text that help me develop the proposition and help me develop the main points. So, what that means is, explanation isn't primarily teaching. Explanation does not primarily serve a teaching purpose. It serves primarily a pastoral purpose. Okay. Explanation doesn't primarily serve a teaching purpose. It primarily serves a pastoral purpose. So we don't explain so that people learn about systematic theology. Now they can, and they do, but we don't do it so that they do learn about systematic theology. We do it to serve the pastoral needs of the church as given and identified in the proposition. So, so we, again, this this is what we said earlier, that exegetical sermons are not running commentaries. So you're, if you're explaining something in the text that is completely unrelated to your proposition, you, people might learn from it, but people, it's not advancing your sermon. It's not advancing your sermon. So uh, this, here's an, here's an example that only Mikey's going to get because Mikey's the only one who cares about Lord of the Rings and has watched Lord of the Rings. Oh, I think James, James, have you seen Lord of the Rings or no? Oh yeah. one of my favorites. Okay, good. So there's, there's a, there's a scene in the commentary of Lord of the Rings where um, Peter Jackson is asked why he took out the Tom Bombadil scene in the movie. So if you don't know Lord of the Rings, there's after Frodo sets out on the journey to take the ring and throw it into Mount Doom to destroy the ring, right? That sets it up. The whole story is going about getting that ring and just, and killing it. we got to kill the ring, right? That's the whole story. And there's a scene in the book where they go and visit this guy called Tom Bombadil and it's seemingly completely random. Tom Bombadil never shows up again. We, we don't even know who he is, where he comes from. He's kind of like a Melchizedek in that way. Like right? he just shows up and then leaves uh and uh peter jackson did not put that in the lord of the rings movies even though it was in the book and someone asked him why didn't you put it in the movie and he said because the movie is about taking the ring to mordor the movie is about destroying the ring and anything in the movie that does not lead towards the destruction of the ring i edited out i took it out okay let that be your in your mind. That's in my mind as I write sermons. Um, we don't, there's nothing in my sermon that does not get the ring to Mordor. If, if the journey is just throwing the ring into Mount doom, destroying the ring, I, I take everything out. That doesn't do that. If the sermon is about the proposition, if it's about journeying from one place to another. I don't stop to look at, I don't stop to sightsee. I don't take the long way around. I don't take unnecessary routes. I go as quickly as I can to the proposition. Anything that doesn't do that, even if it's explanation, even if it's an interesting thing in the text, I don't say it because it's a distraction. So, so what this means is our, our explanation uh, our explanation serves, one, it serves, the, it serves the, the pastoral needs of the church as defined by the proposition. You could say it like that that's number one and and number two and this is secondarily it clearly roots our arguments in the text it clearly roots our arguments in the text so it it protects us from talking about things that aren't in the text so james so your your text that you're preaching on um I, I've, I heard a guy preach a sermon on that text. And I remember as I heard that sermon thinking, what is this guy talking about? Like, I don't even understand a word this guy is saying. And as I think back on that sermon now, right? And I think back on it now, I think the problem was not that, that he didn't talk about what was in the text, but he never did explanation he read the text and then immediately started applying it and illustrating it but he never explained it so if we go to first john 4 and uh he he he's i I remember him talking about no one has seen god but if we love one another god's love abides in us and his love is perfected in us so the john is saying god is unseeable however when we love one another people see what god is like And he spent a long time talking about how our love for one another shows people what God is like. He's been a long time applying that in like a bunch of different ways and meditating on it. And as I think back, I'm like, you know what? He was saying that because it's in the text, but he never pointed me to the text. He never explained it from the text. He never, I mean, it could have taken two minutes tops. Look at verse 12 with me. Do you see this? And because of that, I was, I was lost. I was completely lost. It felt random. It felt like it wasn't from the text, even though it was. He had meditated on the text for a very long time. And he was saying good things from the text and about the text, but, but he wasn't showing me how he got the idea from the text. And explanation helps us with that. Um, this, this helps us because sermons that don't develop and explain, um, it, it causes people to, to lose interest or question our integrity. Yeah. So what I was saying was explanation clearly roots my arguments in the text because the alternative is we, people lose interest. They lose interest if they don't see how the sermon is rooted in the text. They question our integrity. Also, they can say like, is this guy just talking about whatever's on his mind or is he actually talking about the text? And if they have to look hard at the text to figure out where you're getting your ideas, now they're not paying attention to you they're trying to find where you're getting this from the text which which leads into just being confused why are we talking about what we're talking about so that's why we must explain before we apply we must explain before we apply um but then so that's number one number two number two and and perhaps more long-term long-term this is perhaps more significant um we want to model for people how to read the Bible. We want to show people how to read their Bibles. Sermons teach people how to read their Bibles. What, however you preach on Sunday morning is how people, the people will do that Monday through Saturday in their personal Bible reading. And if you teach them how to read the text, understand what it's saying and then apply it, then that's what they're going to be doing in their personal Bible reading as well. Um, Three, and this is related to number one explanation lays the groundwork for application. It lays the groundwork for application. The purpose of explanation is application. Okay explanation is not an end in and of itself and this is a problem this is a problem that young seminary students fall into is they think that they're explaining the text for the sake of explaining the text but that's not what a sermon is a sermon is not a lecture a sermon is not a teaching time a sermon is not um, systematic theology a sermon is not biblical theology a sermon is not a running commentary on the text a sermon is serving the pastoral needs of the church with the text So so explanation is not an ends in itself. Explanation lays the groundwork for application. So what that what that means is we don't explain what we don't apply. If we don't explain what we don't apply. If we're not going to apply an idea, then we shouldn't be explaining it. Now, now you, what you can do is this. It, it could be that there's one, two, three, four, five different ideas. And then once I explain all of those ideas, now I can apply them to a single point. I'm not saying that each explanation point should have one application point. But I am saying if we're explaining something and that explanation doesn't accomplish the the applicational purposes of the sermon then we're not explaining for the right reasons we're explaining just because this is a cool tidbit right this is a fun fact we're not giving people fun facts we're not giving them uh, we're not we're not just trying to satisfy theological intrigue what we're trying to do is show people christ and apply the gospel to people's lives in the sermon Because what's the purpose? What do we say the purpose of revelation is? Does anyone remember from our prolegomena class? What's the purpose of revelation?
4: Relationship.
0: Relationship, that's right. Which means our explanation, if that's our theological conviction, then our explanation um, gives birth to application. Our explanation shows us how to enter into a relationship with god how to maintain that relationship with god how to live in light of the relationship with god and we model that in our preaching that explanation gives birth to application so and this is this is the flip side of this is we don't we don't explain we don't apply and we don't apply what we haven't explained there's a there's a tight connection between explanation and application they have to go together Do those, do those three purposes make sense? Any questions on that? So I, I, want, to, I want to ask a few, a few questions before we get into what do we explain, right? This, this gives us, this gives us gui- guidelines and we'll model this in a second, but I want to ask you a couple of questions first. One, how deep do we dive? how deep do we dive in our explanation? So I, um, <clears throat> I had a, a pastor once who, who explained that this was his model. Um, this was his model of how deep he goes in the sermon, because we can always dive deep into the text, right? We can always dive deeper. He liked to think of it as like um, the Bible as being like four shelves, okay? Four, sh- four shelves, or you have one shelf with four um, racks on it or four railings on it. And the first shelf is the easiest to get to. The second shelf, you have to reach a little bit higher up to get to it. The third shelf is much harder to get to. And the fourth shelf is very, very difficult to grasp, right? So, so what he said was, uh, on, on Sunday, he preached three sermons a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And he said on, on Sunday morning, he goes with shelf one. He, it's just very easy, very simple stuff. Sunday night, he goes to shelf two. So it's a little bit deeper, a little bit harder to explain. And then Wednesday night, he has shelf three, which is much more complicated. And then he never does shelf four. He never gets to shell four, which is the, the deep things, the hard to understand things. How does that strike you? What do you think of that?
2: It seems kind of rigid. Like
3: <laughs> it
0: is a little rigid, yeah.
3: I think his heart makes sense, but it seems a little more like: is there a truth that's a shelf three that feel like his work spending 10 minutes It's really gonna meet the pastoral needs of our church, I'd be willing to go there, but I'd weigh the costs.
2: Mm-hmm. Good any other ideas about that example? <clears throat>
0: I think the problem, the the primary problem with that is that um, people, people look at how we read the Bible and that is what they mimic in their personal devotions. And I think that people will never go deeper in their personal devotions than we show them from the pulpit people will never go deeper in their personal devotions than we demonstrate for them. <clears throat> and I, I do think that I do think James is right. There's a pastoral heart behind it that you don't want people to walk away confused. But I think that, I think that the problem there, the problem that he's addressing is served when we ask the is, is answered when we ask this question, does what I'm explaining serve the pastoral needs of the church? Because because if it is, if it does, then I should go as deep as needed into the text to serve the pastoral needs of the church. Um I, I shouldn't limit myself in my explanation. I should I should show people the depths that you can go to. Now now the depths does not equal systematic theology necessarily. The depths does not equal biblical theology necessarily. The depths does not equal quoting the original necessarily. But what it does mean is we model, we model for people. I I think, how deep do we dive? As deep as, as deep as necessary. And for, and for the purpose of one, so as deep as necessary for the purpose of one, accomplishing the pastoral needs, the casserole purpose of the sermon, and two, modeling for people, how to read their Bible. I think that's what we do. So with that, how do we use systematic theology? How do we use the original languages, things like that? I I think, I think a lot of times we can reach conclusions without showing people how we got there. We can nuance things quickly without explaining all the, the reasons why we're nuancing it like that. We're, we're giving people the fruit of our, our own personal study. And not everything we've studied do we mention from the sermon or from the pulpit. And this, and this is clear. If you if you get these three principles here, then you're not going to be mentioning unnecessary details. You can dive deeply for the purpose of serving the pastoral needs of the church. That's why we do it. Number, number two, cross-references. So sometimes you'll see this in a sermon. you have main point one, and this comes from the text. But then you have sub point one, cross reference. Sub point two, cross reference. Sub point three, cross reference. And and guys will think that because they're explaining a text that they're preaching their sermon the The problem is the problem is when we think here we we could do it like this um, unhelpful uses when we think that using cross references is the same as explaining the text, we're using them wrong, using cross references is not the same as explain the text. Using cross-references is bringing another text in. Now they can be used to explain the text and that'd be a helpful use. The The helpful use is when I use them to explain the text, to illustrate, explain, apply, right? If a text is unclear, if a text meaning might be misinterpreted or if the same idea is used elsewhere, Right. Something like that. I can use a cross reference to help explain my text. But what I don't do is just use cross references because another text talks about the same thing. Because what I end up doing is explaining those other texts, or I end up um, unhelpful would be explaining other texts becoming distracted. Um, or or when my cross-references lead me to deal with my text only on a surface level because I'm spending so much time quoting other texts, or because I feel like I need to legitimize my interpretation with cross-references. I don't need to do that. I can simply say what the text says and preach my text without needing to do systematic theology and biblical theology. And so many times referencing these other texts, referencing other themes or showing how the theme is developed elsewhere, it becomes so complicated that yeah, I don't even explain the theme itself well, when when all I have to do is simply look at the text and explain what's there on the page in my particular text. So a- any questions
2: on that? Yeah, Amy
4: Then where, when would you, uh, cross: like, Yep.
0: Uh, so if I want to illustrate, explain or apply, if a cross-reference serves to illustrate what I'm saying, to explain what I'm saying, or apply what I'm saying, if a cross-reference sheds light on my text, right? I don't do cross-references for the sake of doing them. I do them for the sake of explaining or illustrating or applying. Now, I love cross-references for illustrations, and we'll get to that um what about our next section but if, go ahead
4: what about augmenting um, the text for example like if the text briefly speaks about something but we see elsewhere with the same author or even just uh, from the same book that has been explained say would, would that be would that be helpful or
0: yeah, I you can. The question is is it necessary for getting done what I need to get done in the sermon or is it a distraction? Right? So, so I can always use cross references even by the same author. So if I'm if I'm talking about here, here's a question. Um if I'm preaching Ephesians 3 14 through 19. and we talk about the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Right? The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, when you think of Christ's love in Ephesians, you immediately think of Ephesians five, how Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. I think that that's a helpful cross reference because this text is does not explicitly name the gospel. So you can ask the question: How? What's the what? When we're talking about the love of Christ, where do we see that most fully? Well, do you remember Ephesians chapter five? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her and cleanse her and wash her. And then I can even use that to, um, to further build my argument for the love of Christ, right? So he gave himself up for the church to sanctify her and cleanse her and wash her. What that means is he loved us before we knew him, before we loved him. And I'm, the reason I'm using that cross-reference is to show that Christ's love is bigger than we can comprehend. I'm using that cross reference to uh, to explain my text, but I think I think what would be an illegitimate use, um, love love elsewhere, would be uh, in love he predestined us for adoption. I mean maybe, or or maybe a, a better one is Ephesians. Five one be imitators of God here. The imitators of God is beloved children. Sure, love is used in both those texts. We are beloved children, but first of all, this is talking about God's love, it's not talking about Christ's love. I mean, verse two certainly is right, but verse one is not. So, if I just cross reference that, it would just be kind of for the, the word love is used in both texts. So, let me just talk about. Let me just talk about love elsewhere in Ephesians. Now, you could even cross-reference verse number two, but I would argue it's not as good a cross-reference as chapter five. You could say Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, sure, but a better cross-reference would be Christ loved the church and gave, up, gave himself up for her for the purpose of washing her. Oh, you know, It's just, it, it explains more of what I'm saying. So the cross-reference should always serve the explanatory purposes of the sermon, I think, or illustration purposes of the sermon or applicational purposes of the sermon. Yeah, good question. Lastly, theology.
3: I think you'll get to my question when you get to illustration, probably.
0: Okay, sounds good. Um, Theology. So theological points. Um, So there are times in your sermon That you will need to explain theological concepts that are mentioned in your text, but aren't explicit in your, um, that they're not explicitly explained in your text, right? Um, So an example of that here, chapter five, verse two, the fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I, I think a legitimate, depending on what your proposition is. If your proposition has to do with Christ's death in our place or propitiation or something like that, you can explain what a fragrant offering and sacrifice is and go to biblical theology or systematic theology to explain that. But the the key concept, again, only in that it serves the pastoral needs of the church as expressed in the prop. So again, all of our explanation is always looking back to the proposition. I don't explain something that I don't plan to, that doesn't, that doesn't help me get the ring to Mordor. I don't explain something that doesn't help me um, explain the proposition. And two, I don't explain something I don't plan on applying later. Does that make sense as conceptual things
2: before we get into how we explain
0: Good. Um, So, how do explain? Oh, do you have a question, Brian? Oh, just switching it on. Okay, great. That sounds man. Whatever Caleb did with that today, it sounds great. So, how how do we explain? There's three three points in explanation that I think if you follow these three <clears throat> steps. Um you're you're going people aren't gonna be lost. People are going to understand what you're what you're saying. So one, we state, we state the main point or the subpoint. We state the main point of the subpoint, the point we're trying to make, the proposition, right? So if we're if we're doing um <clears throat> if we're doing this text here, for example. We say, first, Christ loves us. Or Christ's love for us is demonstrated in the gospel. That's number one. Christ's love for us is demonstrated in the gospel. So we say it. Right. Then, number two, and we I get this from Brian Chapel. This is this is his three. Second, we place it. We point the text. So we say, here we would say, Christ. Love is expressed for us in the gospel. And then with number two, we say, look with me at verse two. Right? So I'm stating my point. I'm going to make this point. Christ's love for us is expressed in the gospel. Look with me at verse two. And then lastly, we prove. We prove it. So we prove the point we're making in the development of the text. So I can do it like this. Main point number one, Christ's love is expressed for us in the gospel. Look with me down in your Bibles at verse two. Walk in love as Christ, and I can even read it in a way that points it out. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Do you see that? Christ loved us. And then I develop that point. I, I explain it. And that's this is where the heart of my explanation comes, is in this proving point or the the explaining part. But I think if we don't do these first two, we don't we're not we're not properly tying our explanation to the text. It leaves people again with with these with these problems that we talked about here. They lose interest. They question our integrity. They get confused. We don't model for people how to read the Bible. So state place prove. And and once you do this a few times it just becomes very natural. And you might even do this naturally because you've heard a lot of good preaching also. <clears throat> Any questions on that? Look with me in your Bibles at Matthew 4. So so what what we do then when we're getting ready to preach. What we do when we get ready to preach? is we get our proposition in front of us, we get our main points in front of us, and then we ask, what parts of this text do I need to explain? What parts of this text do I need to explain to accomplish my purposes for the text, right? So I read the text and I, I say, okay, this is, this is probably something I should explain. This is probably something I don't need to explain. So for instance, if, if this is our proposition, because Jesus Christ endured temptation, he is the only sure refuge in our temptations. Okay, That's my prop. That's what I'm going to prove in the sermon. Because Jesus Christ endured temptation, he is the only sure refuge in our temptation. And then I get to Matthew chapter four and I see immediately, okay, the first thing I see is Jesus being led by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. Okay, so do I, do I need to, in my sermon, talk about the Spirit's leading? I don't think so. I don't think I need to talk about the leading of the Spirit. Now, that's in the text, but because of my proposition... I don't think, I don't think that explaining the spirit, what it means that the spirit led Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted is necessary for my proposition. Now, if I want to address that another time or another sermon, I can. But, but another example is fasting. Right? So if I get here, do I need to explain fasting? Probably not. Now, could I, could I talk about this, though? Jesus, do you see where he is? He's in the wilderness. He's been, he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And do you see who's tempting him? It's the devil himself. Oh, my goodness. If there was ever a time when he is subject to temptation, it's now, is it not? Okay, do you see that? Now, I've explained three things. He's not, in a, he's not in a great place. He's in the wilderness, the place of testing. The devil himself is coming and he's been fasting. So he, he is hungry and these temptations are going to, sur- the first temptation is going to surround hunger. And now I'm showing, oh, I'm showing Christ's resolution to endure temptation. So I don't need to talk about ideas of fasting. I don't need to talk about the idea of the spirit leading. I don't need to talk about uh, every little detail in the text, but I, whatever I do explain, I explained for the purpose of the proposition. Um, even, even Jesus as is Israel, Jesus as is the new Israel, should I explain that as a theological point in the text? I think I could. I think I could because that serves the proposition, right? The, the point of the text is Jesus endured temptation as the new Israel, and so i can i can explain the 40 days and 40 nights in that light i can explain the wilderness in that light i can explain the testing in that light i can explain the son of god phrasing in that light right all of that points me to jesus as the new israel especially coming out of the, the baptism the beloved son with whom i'm well pleased which means that jesus is jesus jesus succeeded where israel failed and he endured temptation and because of that he's he's our only sure refuge in temptation another uh, um, explanation I might make is you see how these temptations are increasing, right? There's an increasing intensity in the temptations. It starts with um, it starts with him being tempted in the wilderness. And then he's tempted on top of the temple. And then he's tempted on top of the mountain and he's offered the entire world, right? Like he's, he's not just being tempted to, to have a, a quick lustful thought well, he's in uh, a boat in the middle of the sea of Galilee enjoying, enjoying the sunny day. Right? No, it, it, he's being tempted, especially to not have to go to the cross to receive. This is what he gets for going to the cross, right? He gets all the nations because that's where Matthew ends on top of a mountain. He gets all the nations, the temptation is you don't need to go with God's plan. You can go with Satan's plan and you can still get all the world, Jesus. Do you want all the world? Well, here's an easy way to get it. But Jesus said no. Jesus refused. And if that's true, if Jesus refused, then, then he is the only sure refuge in our temptation. Right? When, when we are tempted also, we can run to Christ who sympathizes with us. Christ who, um, Christ who, as, as this uh, in verse nine says, he can, he says, be gone, Satan. And when he says, be gone, Satan, Satan flees. And if that's true, he's the only sure refuge in our temptation because, because he, he has the power to make Satan run, to make Satan flee because Satan obeys when Jesus says run. And so if that's true, he's the only sure refuge in our temptations. You see, there's a lot of things I could explain in the text. I could even explain you know, the temple, the holy city, the, what, what's the pinnacle of the temple. I could explain all those peripheral details, but none of those explain, none of those accomplish the proposition. So what I do in my sermon preparation is I walk through my text and I say, what ideas especially should be explained to accomplish my proposition? So just thinking about the Brian's sermon, for instance, here. Does he need to explain what worldly passions are, what self-controlled living is? Does he need to talk about godly lives in the present age? Does he need to talk about the present age versus the age to come, things like that? Does he need to explain the difference between an upright life and a godly life? Probably not. Probably not. He, he now he can he can talk about what these are in that they serve his proposition, but his proposition is about how the gospel is the source of our obedience. The gospel shows us what obedience looks like, and the gospel empowers us for obedience. And so he should go through this text and talk about what, and ask of each word and each phrase, what do I need to explain to accomplish this? What of this is peripheral? What of this do I not need to explain to accomplish my proposition?